Coming up on Talk is Cheap, we're going to look at NASA's Black Magic Origins. What's it about? We got Lauren here to break it down up next on Talk is Cheap. Where cheap is talk and talk is cheap. I'm your host, Dan Hofel, for episode 173 NASA's Black Magic Origins. To my left is Pete Hallblad. How's it going, Dano? Oh. Episode 173. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, man. It's. I was looking at the temperature in the studio. It's 84 degrees, but we're just chilling. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, if you feel like you need to take your shirt off to cool down, go for You've it, You've been man. trying to see me naked I, on all I, these episodes. Dude, I was, okay, lovers. I'm going to digress real quick here. Before we started this episode, I was outside talking to your parents. Your mom goes in the house and comes out and makes me take my shirt off. That's a true story. All right. That's a true story. That happened. And uh, so I think turnabout's fair play, Dan. Um, uh, you know, I digress. And and what's really cool about tonight, Dan, t- tell us what's super cool about tonight. Lauren is actually going to be hosting this episode. She's out in South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Lauren? Yeah, you got it. All right. Uh, this, Way past her bedtime, too. Yeah, it's so. like 9 o'clock over there. <laughs> 9.30. <laughs> yep. So. But uh, you, for obvious reasons, we're going to just put your picture up. We had some technical difficulties earlier, so we're just going to keep it as an audio-only stream. And uh, You're stuck looking at Dan and I, folks. I'm sorry. Or some slides. Yeah, yeah. We'll try to, we'll try to keep, keep the camera off us as much as we can. So, all right, Lauren, I guess we'll give you the reins and take this episode where you want it to go. Okay, guys. Yeah, and um, for people listening, there will still be some interesting pictures for you guys to look at as I go along, so no need to turn the video off. And thanks for having me on, Dan. It's good to be with you again. It's been a long time. (laughs) We've been trying to do this probably since February-ish? Yeah, since February. (laughs) It's been a Showbiz takes time. Seven months, yeah. All right, so um, what I wanted to tell you guys about today is NASA's Black Magic Origins, a very interesting story about um, rocket scientist Jack Parsons. Um, and there's a common thread linking Black Magic and the United States United States Space Program. That common thread is named Jack Parsons, and today I'm going to tell you about how he is the man responsible for bringing about the modern American UFO movement. So first I'll just tell you a little bit about his childhood. He was born Jack Parsons as Marvel Whiteside Parsons. Yes, his first name was Marvel in 1914. And his mother later changed his name to John, but he was called Jack. And he came from a wealthy family in Southern California, old money. And he was always homeschooled by a governess until middle school. So he was definitely a really unique kid. And he's described by those who knew him best as good-natured, a people pleaser and he had an inability to say no to people. He was sensitive, he loved art, classical music and poetry, he loved science fiction magazines which at that time were called pulp fiction, uh, if that sounds familiar, and that, that was the early version of comic books. And he also had long hair and was always finely dressed no matter the occasion 
And this was a quality that would later follow him into adulthood. And his friends even commented that he was always dressed well, even when they were blowing stuff up in the desert. Wait, what were they blowing stuff up in the desert with? Oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay, awesome. I'm like, I love this guy so far. The way you've described him, I'm like, I want to be his friend or I want, you know, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, this is, um, this might be the only history lesson you ever enjoy, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll hold you to that one. You guys know Uh, I love uh, history class. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he had a deep fascination with magic and the occult, and um, he had recorded a story in a letter that when he was a kid, he tried to summon the devil in his be- his bedroom. And he didn't expound on what had occurred, but whatever happened, it scared him so badly that it, it prevented him from doing any kind of more, any more magic until adulthood. Um, but unfortunately, we don't know the story. Um, and so when he started, he started attending public school and middle school, and he stood out like a sore thumb because of um, all the aforementioned interesting character traits. He was even driven to school in his grandfather's limo, which made him the center of attention mm. for all the <laughs> wrong reasons. Uh, yeah, I'd imagine so. <laughs> um, and because of this, he was beat up a lot, and kids would pull his hair and, and gang up on him, and he was a loner. And he would later look back on that time of his life with a lot of difficulty. Um, but there was one friend that he made whose name was Foreman. And this guy actually stepped in and saved him from being um, beat up one time. And they became lifelong partners in crime, so to speak. And they became like soulmates right away. Uh, and the two, do- the two boys spent all their free time talking about science fiction and designing rockets and building prototypes of rockets. Foreman's father was an engineer, so he had the tools and Jack had the money to buy the additional supplies. And you have to understand that there was no such thing as rocket science at this time. This was the early 20th century. Yes, rockets had been used as weapons, and of course China had been experimenting with black powder for centuries, but the field of rocket science writes rocket science and space exploration did not exist as we know it today. And yeah, th- think of that. It's like even just like 10, 15 years prior, there weren't even airplanes, right? You yeah. know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, that's, that's insane. Yep. So for these guys, these boys really to be thinking in this way was pretty phenomenal. Um, space exploration was not even on the table. It wasn't a priority for the government and any government in the world at the time. There was um, some level of, of rocket science going on, but they didn't call it that per se. Um, and it was more of a priority to try to create weapons rather than go mm-hmm. into space to explore. Um, But that was always Jack's goal, was to build a rocket that would go to the moon or to go into outer space. To the moon! Sounds a lot like Elon Musk in a sense. You know, he's got a... Dogecoin. Yeah, there you go. Yep. True. So his his mom became worried that him and Foreman were going to blow themselves up, so he was sent away to military school. Um, And while there, he blew up the toilets in the bathroom. So that he would be sent home, and he was sent home. What was his choice of munitions? 
I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I was thinking, so you're, you're afraid that you're concerned your kids blowing stuff up. So you send them to the military where they teach you to blow oh, stuff yeah. up, yeah. you know? Anyway, I, I find that ironic, but that's awesome. <laughs> well, that's where you can get his aggression. I get yeah. It. Yep. And he blew up some toilets and got sent back home. So yep. mission accomplished. Definitely. And of course, when he returned home, he and Foreman just continued their research and experimentation. Um, and so when they were teenagers, both Parsons and Foreman regularly had phone, long distance phone conversations. You can imagine what that, what the bill was like at that time. Mm. Um, exchange and exchange letters with Nazi, the Nazi father of modern rocketry himself, Werner von Braun. So they were exchanging information with Werner von Braun, even as teenagers. Wow. Yeah. So his wealthy family lost everything during the Great Depression after his grandfather died, as many as did many families in Pasadena at the time where they lived. And um, he got into Stanford, and he was working at Hercules Powder Company while trying to go to school, but had to drop out because he just couldn't afford it. But he proved to be not that great of a student anyway. Um, he was just one of those learners that he was just super hands-on and he was um he was brilliant but not in the academic way sure yeah in the accepted modern exactly. modern for the time academic way yeah right like he was just genius out of <laughs> traditional academics so ap after dropping out of stanford he started working at caltech which stands for california institute of technology and he helped to establish Gaussett Rocket Research. And Gaussett stands for the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. And he was just a young man um, working at Caltech. So during World War II, the Gaussett Rocket Research Project started receiving federal funding because um, it didn't take long for the government to catch on that these rockets could be weaponized. Mm -hmm. And we got to blow up Nazis, so yeah. let's do it. Yeah. And with the help of the genius mind of Jack Parsons, they developed solid and liquid propellant units to assist the takeoff of heavily loaded aircraft and began work on high-altitude rockets. So they started by putting, like, basically boosters on airplanes uh, that had heavy loads and then, then went more vertical over time, it sounds like. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's maybe one way to say it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's one way to say it. Yeah, and at the same time, um, Jack was experimenting uh, with chemistry as well and trying to get the right mixture of rocket fuel. Um, so he was doing both. It was the engineering side of the rocket itself and, and the fuel. Um, yeah, but at this time, space exploration was still, even after they were receiving federal funding, Space exploration, you know, the dream of Jack Parsons was still relegated to science, the world of science fiction. Um, so at the what, time, what year was this again? Um, this would have been in the 1930s. Okay. So um, at the time, Parsons was only a sporadic part-time chemistry student at the University of Southern, Southern California. Like, they let him take classes for free while he was working at Caltech. But like I said, he wasn't a great student. Um, but he, he and his friends that were doing these sort of tests with him and everything were uh, had gained a reputation around the USC campus. 
and uh, as well as fame around Pasadena. And they were constantly blowing things up and almost blowing themselves up so often that they became known as the Suicide Squad. So Marvel, Suicide Squad. So I think- Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I, li- I like that. You know, what's interesting, too, is like it, it seems like they were like the epitome of trial and error, right? You know, oh, for uh, sure. you know, let's hey, let's mix this batch up and see what happens. I love it. Yes. Jack was. He was super scientific about everything he did, as as you'll see, and um, he that he, that's exactly what he did. He just never quit. He just tried and tried again. It was his dream, and he was gonna see it through. Mm-hmm. So the Suicide Squad did the rocket testing at Devil's Gate near Pasadena, and there's supposedly an indigenous history of that area of Southern California. And the native tribes that area were actually forbidden from getting too close to that part of the Arroyo Seco River, where the dam and Devil's Gate are located. And that's how it got the name Devil's Gate, because... Yeah, I got the picture up here now. That's what it looks like now. It's all closed up. So it's all locked up there? I mean, did it, I'm sure people tried to get I'm, in there. I'm trying to think of where else I've heard Devil's Gate before. Yeah, it does sound familiar. It sounds super familiar to me. Apparently, that in the side of the mountain, it looks like the face of the devil or something. And um, so even the tribes people and the indigenous of that area stayed away from it. So, like, the, the weird vibes. Um, mm-hmm. didn't so the, what is in there, though? Is it just a river? I am not sure exactly what's in there, um, but... So why would they have to lock it, you know? Um, there's probably still in Jack's honor a lot, well, you, as I'll continue to, to inform you guys about his magical workings, I would imagine that people continue to go in there and do some stuff, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, and Jack believed it literally was a portal to hell, um, which is why that was... That was one of the reasons he wanted to do his experiments there. And he even um, invoked the god Pan before every rocket test. Are you guys familiar with Pan? Oh, he was the flute-playing sheep man, right, or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's supposed to be like the god of the natural world, basically. And um, But he's known as like a trickster, a trickster god. All right, so, like one of those you don't know, are they going to be good or are they going to be bad? Yep. Or maybe good for most part and then get you at the end, right? Yes. Which is ironic you say that. <laughs> but a little force. Man, I'll tell you, Lauren, we are syncing up tonight. We are tracking on the same page even from our <laughs> conversation before we, we started airing. So, I'm, I'm liking this. This is great. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, so, on Halloween night of 1936, Jack Parson and his suicide squad completed the first successful rocket test in Arroyo Seco, California. So the first time that was the first time on Halloween night, they got it lifted off. And in 1942, he founded Aerojet Corp, which is still a corporation. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. Still heavily involved in the United States government. Um, And he, he did later sell it, but he was one of the founding members of Aerojet Corporation. 
And so, then, Lauren, quick yeah. question. Okay. Uh, you, when they f- their first successful launch, did you come across any, like, how big was this rocket? Was it, you oh, know, like yeah. six foot, ten foot, a big thing carrying a cargo? Did you come across anything that described that? They actually didn't, um, in all the literature that I've read, get into those kinds of technical details. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was reading more things based on his life, not so much the science exactly. Sure. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, that I'm makes sure sense. I'm sure you could find something that is based solely on the science that would ha- probably has all that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was scaled down, too. I mean, they weren't launching, you know, a 100-foot, you know. No, Saturn no. rocket into the air on the desert. I just, I was just curious if you had come across that. Yeah, no. that'd be a hell of a first time rocket. Let's make it big. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was just like uh, the first time where they got the size and the the rocket fuel combination just mm-hmm. right. You know, to actually get it up in the air. You know, yeah, and actually, um, Gauss became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1944, and. So JPL, some people say that that stands for uh, the Jack Parsons Laboratory. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And it was the institution that was to become America's first center for long-range missile development and space research. So he was really on the forefront of this jet propulsion stuff. Yeah. This is yeah. crazy. He's like the the father, the uh, the progenitor of um, American rocketry, really. Mm-hmm. And so some years later, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which, um, all right, so that, and it became a major part of NASA. So Mm -hmm. JPL, yeah, JPL was around before NASA was actually an organization. So they kind of just blended into each other. And so, as I was saying, um, Caltech and the Suicide Squad actually helped found rocketry as a field of study in America. And Caltech offered the first rocketry courses in America that people could take to study. And they had established a firm theoretical and experimental ground for rocketry and had helped make it a valuable science in the eyes of the government and the military. And to this day, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory hosts a yearly quote-unquote nativity party in honor of Parsons and the Suicide Squad on Halloween and they, oh, how cool is that? Yeah, they have they. What they do is they have these these uh, life size cutout posters of the Suicide Squad, and they put them around, and they have this party in their honor. And um, they also had a crater on the dark side of the moon named after him. So really, <laughs> yeah. How, how does do you, in in your research? Did you find out how one gets invited to this party? That you're talking about i <laughs> gotta do some kind of ritual yeah yeah have a lot of money or be super smart in rocketry maybe right yeah, i would assume you have to work for work at jpl or um well if or- you ever come across you know some uh vip tickets to this party <laughs> let me know well that would be a fun episode wouldn't it? Y- yes, <laughs> They probably really know a lot of things at that party. That would be yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd probably go there and feel really stupid, you know, as you're definitely. trying to have conversations with people there. Oh, I definitely would. <laughs> yeah, and I'm guessing it's probably not kind of the kind of party that I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, Lauren. I, I digress. Go, you, they make it sound <laughs> innocuous, but I'm sure. Uh, his mind is in the gutter right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. It should be because we're about to get. I should have. Um, oh, yeah given a little preamble at the beginning that 
this episode is not appropriate for children. If anybody's children is listening, we are. Well, I think people figured that out when we started okay. swearing again on the show. So. Oh, okay. right. Well, no, but I, we do appreciate this, that disclaimer. And it really, it, it, you know, for some folks, it probably really piqued their interest, including mine. So I, I can't wait to see where we're going to go with this. Okay. How are you? Well, the Suicide Squad eventually dissolved. And Parsons uh, soon found his way to a Gnostic black mass of the Church of Thelema. And I'm sure you guys recognize Thelema from your Aleister Crowley episode. Mm-hmm. And um, he was already somewhat familiar with Crowley because obviously Crowley at the time was um, sort of famous, known as you know Britain, no, known in Britain as the wickedest man alive, and that sort of thing. Um, but after this Black Mass and an initiation into Thelema, he had found his tribe, so to speak. You know, like. The Suicide Squad had kind of broken up and everybody had gone their own direction. So he was looking for his people and he found them at the OTO. Um, So he officially joined the OTO, which is the Ordo Templi Orientis. And he started studying Crowleyism in earnest at that time. And like I said before, he approached magic the same way he approached rocketry with his entire being. He was consumed by both science and magic and believed they were intrinsically linked. Mm -hmm. In 1942, he took over the Los Angeles Lodge um, of the OTO called the Agape Lodge. And um, let's see. At his personal mansion, Jack hosted orgy parties and black magic rituals. (laughs) (laughs) All right. His, you had me at orgy, but go ahead. Yeah, of course. <laughs> His personal mansion was deemed the parsonage, which is supposed to be a play on words because a parsonage is uh, a Christian. Um, mm-hmm. like it's where, where the preacher lives, right? Yeah, where the minister lives, yeah, yeah. for a church, right? So, um, and I'm sure you guys already know, but sex magic is a huge aspect of Crowleyism. And Um, Jack began a series of sex magic rituals called the Crossing of the Abyss, which Jack himself described as, quote, 40 days of madness and horror, which which was supposed to transform him into, quote, the master of the temple. And the last of Crowley's disciples before Jack to attempt this series of rituals was was found wandering the streets naked, having lost his mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Jack, like Crowley, was also fond of taking a variety of drugs to be able to enter an altered state of mind. And he even wrote a poem that says, I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain. That sounds good. That really, like, summarizes his his drug use there. All right, I'm back to being interested in this party you were talking about earlier, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> lots of parties going on. Yeah. I'll get into it. So lots of different um, types of people live there, like art, like at his mansion, the Parsonage, um, like artists, bohemians, other science fiction types, science fiction writers, and of course, other Thelemites. Jack and the other Thelemites and housemates and prostitutes regularly engaged in sex magic. There were a number of disturbing reports from neighbors and visitors to the parsonage. Um, The neighbors filed a complaint when they saw a pregnant woman leaping through a fire nine times. 
Uh, a 16-year-old boy reported to the police that he had been forcibly sodomized during a ritual, which uh, was disregarded by the police after an investigation. But I believe he was probably telling the truth, because if you can think in the late 1930s, early 1940s, what, you know, coming going to the police as a young man to say that you had been raped, essentially. Uh, yeah, but- that's... a. You know, that is just a recipe for just ostracization in your community and and rejection by your family and everything. Uh So I don't know. I don't think that at that time that he that a young man would have made that up. You know, it's it's unlikely for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've even read that Jack engaged the house dog and his mother both in sexual activities for the sake. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Like, I don't Jack did? Yeah. Or, ooh, Jack. Because yeah. yeah. party might might not be what I'm looking for after <laughs> yeah. all. But go, it, yeah, go it's not, a little extreme yeah. there. When you when we're talking about sex magic and Crowley did this too, um, it's a perversion to the highest degree. Like we're not talking about uh, Studio sixty four type orgies where like everybody's just having <laughs> a good time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is supposed to be a perversion and um an inversion of what the Christian God deemed as, you know, um, acceptable sexual behavior. So Crowley also engaged in every kind of sexual perversion that, that you can imagine for the sake of, um, the perversion, right? Yeah. It's the perversion of it. Um, so I don't, I was probably about corruption. If you can get people to do some crazy stuff. And and I don't want to get too far off topic here. This this is absolutely intriguing, but we're talking you know the 1930s, 1940s, and today when you bring up you know uh, child sex trafficking rings and stuff like that, you're like, oh, you're crazy. That doesn't happen. And here we've got a prominent NASA originator that you know that is is doing this. I mean, it's just it's just it's disheartening. It's very hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. It is. It, it's hard for me for pe- to, to read things where people don't believe that the, the human trafficking and child sex trafficking really does go on. It, it has been going on, and our, our American government has been part and parcel to it and active participants in it since the very beginning. Yeah, this, this is a hit part of that historical record. Yeah. I mean, this is documented. You know, I'll, I'll, do I even go as far as to say as proof that, that this has been occurring at the upper echelons for uh, well a century now. It's all public. Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, so just as Crowley referred to himself as the great beast 666, Jack began to refer to himself as the Antichrist. And um, in my opinion, Crowley more or less used Jack. And uh, Crowley, he used everybody really, but he would talk trash about his his followers behind their backs um Mm -hmm. and he even called jack and another associate an idiot um he called jack an idiot to another thelemite in a letter and um yeah that just kind of shows his character because jack was like a huge fanboy of crowley's (laughs) Mm -hmm. and crowley was a manipulator like that everything that you kind of read about him he he was you know, into that manipulation of people. He liked his followers. Uh, he liked having followers. He didn't necessarily like his followers. And, um, you know, at this point, I, I'd be interested to know, I know Jack came from money. They lost 
the money in the depression. I, I'd be I'd be curious just to be able to take a peek at his bank account during this time mm-hmm. and see if that's why Crowley was keeping him around. It's very yes, that is part of the reason he kept him around. Yes, um, because yeah. Jack was bankrolling the activities going yeah, on go. in California, um, and Jack's bank account ebbed and flowed. Uh, you know, he did run into some some bad luck at times and stuff like everybody does, but. Uh, he was well off for the most part, but he had to work for it. Like when he lost the family fortune, um, he had to make astute business choices just like everybody else. So, but Crowley was definitely using him for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so in his writings and Jack's writings, there's a man that he referred to as the mysterious freighter X. And for a long time, people didn't know who freighter X was, but, uh, Freighter X was actually L. Ron Hubbard, the creator of Scientology. And at the time, Hubbard was just a science fiction writer, but he and Jack met and became bosom buddies right away. And Hubbard moved into a parsonage, okay? And at the time, Jack had a girlfriend who he absolutely adored named Betty. Um, But Hubbard and Betty started shacking up. And they started a very intense sexual relationship, um, which wasn't behind Jack's back or anything because it was the, you know, the house rule of the parsonage was free love and everybody was in open relationships. But, you know, behind closed doors, Jack was kind of devastated, not necessarily about the sexual part, but that Betty was spending all her time with Hubbard. So... Um, he was upset over it, but he decided to just move on and do something different. Uh, and this didn't affect his relationship or his friendship with Hubbard either. In fact, Hubbard was intricately involved in Jack's next and most important set of magical workings. Um, later on, Hubbard and Betty actually stole thousands of dollars from Jack, and soon thereafter, Hubbard officially started the Church of Scientology. So... Hubbard wasn't to be in Jack's life for much longer after this, but he played a pivotal role uh, in this this magical working. And many have accused Hubbard of manipulating Jack into giving him magical secrets and showing him how to do rituals that were far beyond his experience, which Hubbard then later exploited and used to start the Church of Scientology. Which is messed up. We all know that. Wow. Yeah. He was super manipulative, just like Crowley. So. Mm-hmm. That's, how they, that's how they do it. And I even read a biography about Betty. Um, I'm sure she regretted her decision to leave with Hubbard. Uh, for all Jack's fault, I, faults, you know, and, and weirdness, um, he was good to her, you know. And Hubbard was incredibly cruel, as you can imagine. Uh, But anyway, this is where Jack's famous Babylon working begins to take shape, okay? So, Jack declared that it would be his personal mission to open the pathway for Babylon, the whore of Babylon referred to in the book of Revelation in the Bible. The whore of Babylon in the Bible rides a beast, so it's all very antichrist in that it's a mockery of Christian belief, and... The whore rides on the back of the great beast. And remember, Crowley called himself the great beast 666. So it comes back to Crowley. Mm -hmm. 
So, unable to trust women at this point because his before Betty, <laughs> he had another girlfriend, Helen, which is actually Betty's sister, who actually left him with another guy also. So, he was kind of over it. Um, and so, he decided to summon an elemental to be his sex magic partner for this very important series of Babylon working rituals. Um, so, and what that consisted of uh, manifesting his, his elemental included masturbating on his paper tablets, which was witnessed by some people who lived in the house and he was uh, using his wand to draw pentagrams in the air and uh, speaking in the Anakian angel language and things like that. So I'm sure it was pretty uh, intense. Pretty intense. Oh, um, yeah. This went on for, I believe, some weeks. And uh, the paranormal activity really ramped up in the house, so much so that the residents who were there themselves, who were themselves Thelemites and practicing black magic, actually got scared about what Jack was doing. Um, Jack reported a windstorm that like blew all the windows open and stuff in the house, and Hubbard got knocked and his arm was paralyzed for the night, and Jack also heard a mechanical voice say, let me go free. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on in the house. but Yeah, that would get me out of the house too, I think. <laughs> yeah. They were actually going out into the desert in California to do some of these rituals, and um, after one, one the, like the final ritual, basically, uh, he had come home, and a woman named Marjorie Cameron also known as Candy, was awaiting him. And he had written to Crowley that he had summoned his elemental, and, and her name was, a, she was an artist called Candy. And she was an artist and free spirit type who had male family members that worked at Caltech, and that's how she had heard about Jack's legendary weirdness and the parsonage, and she was actually eager to check it out for herself and to get to know him better. Mm-hmm. So Candy and Jack apparently spent a whole week in his bedroom doing sex magic, preparing the way for Babylon. <laughs> oh, good job, Jack. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's that's one way to play that. Yeah. And uh, so at sometime during the course of all of this, Hubbard channeled a message from a red-haired, green-eyed angel ordering them to, quote, light first flame at 10 p.m. March 2nd, 1946. The year of Babylon is 4063, and that would be 2118 BC, um, but I'm not sure what the significance of that date mm -hmm. is. At this point, after the channeled message, they knew they were to summon a demon child, or a Gaborim, as what it's called, that Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, would inhabit. And at this time, Hubbard became the scribe for Jack and kept all of the notes of his workings. So Hubbard was actually present for all of the sex magic rituals with Candy out in the desert. Uh, not exactly sure what all they did. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he actually wrote, Jack wrote a book called The Book of the Antichrist. And he wrote a book about the Babylon workings that were more of a stream of consciousness rather than describing what went on. Uh, 
But after you know, in the during the course of the rituals, which took some months, uh, in early 1946, I believe, in the spring of 1946, um, Babylon appeared to Jack in a dream and called itself Hilarion. And Hilarion is actually what we now know, uh, or those of us who have been involved in the New Age, as um, a, an ascended master or part of the Great White Brotherhood. And that actually comes back to, to Thelema as well. After Jack's death, Candy actually took on the name of Hilarion, but some suspect that this was an individual named Hillary. Uh, I don't think so, but there are some who theorize that he had summoned Babylon into a woman named Hillary that we all know of. Yeah, careful, don't don't say that last name. You'll you'll get suicided. Yeah. So I know. <laughs> Just exactly. I was, I was waiting. I was like, yeah. don't don't say it. Don't say it. We are. Oh, we talked about this yeah. earlier. Mm-hmm. So, but the the theory that I agree with the most I actually came across a blog from an astrologer that theorized what what they actually summoned was the feminist movement, like capital F. Ah. Yeah, capital F feminist movement. Uh, and if you compare the capital F feminist movement with the qualities ascribed to the whore of Babylon in the Bible, that the similarities are quite striking. And it all ties back to Crowley, of course. So after the Second World War, Jack began to explore communism, which put him on the government's radar for the wrong reasons. So I am going to come back to... So, oh, excuse me. In, in effect, they believed that... The, the ritual worked. Uh, it took some time, but they did believe that the Whore of Babylon was inhabited on the earth, that when they finished their ritual, that some woman somewhere was pregnant with the Whore of Babylon. Okay? Mm. So there was some other stuff going on in Jack's life at the time. And like I said, he, he had been exploring communism. Um... And so he was on the government's radar for for other reasons besides rocketry at that time. And his job that he was working at the time had given him the highest level of security clearance available as a civilian in all branches of the military. So that's that's a pretty high <laughs> clearance. Yeah, that that's a, a, an honor and a ranking there that not many folks enjoy. That's for yeah. sure. So for him to be associated with communism, he was definitely nervous. He never formally joined the local chapter, which was to his benefit during the Red Scare, obviously, and McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. He never formally did. But in 1950, he was investigated for his ties to communist groups and because he had actually stolen sensitive documents from his employer to create a proposal for a job in Israel. So basically he was giving sensitive information to Israel. Um, yep. So before, he, before it was cool to give sensitive in, information to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and he of course lost <clears throat> his job and actually 
that, you know, as I said, his finances ebbed and flowed and he became broke again. He was actually working at a gas station pumping gas and uh, as a mechanic to make ends meet. So that was in 1946. And of course, by 1947, there were en masse UFO sightings in America as well as abductions. So this is where we get into the legacy of the Babylon working. Mm-hmm. As we know, um, in 1947, Kenneth Arnold spotted those nine UFOs over Mount Rainier. And then there were those UFOs over the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., in 1947, there was the Roswell crash, and I'm not exactly sure the circumstances, but the government actually had a sit-down with Parsons around this time, after all this stuff started happening, and sort of put him under the spotlight and said, look, does this have anything to do with your rituals? And he admitted that it did, and he actually said that all the sightings in Roswell and abductions were not coincidental. And he said the UFOs will introduce Crowleyism to the world. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Which they really didn't or did they? They're in the process right now, according to the yeah. the leak of the damn report. Okay, yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> yeah so. False flag uh, alien invasion. Yep. So, there, of course, were UFO sightings before 1947, and when I I had a subscription to newspapers.com in the course of my studies for for my degree at the time, so I was doing a little digging and, and looking, and actually, there were no mentions of flying discs before 1947 unless they were talking about skeet shooting. So it really actually did, by all evidence, ramp up after 1947. Uh, and in Passport to Magonia by uh, Jack Vallee, he's a very famous sort of paranormal and UFO writer. Uh, Passport to Magonia is about the history of UFOs, abductions, and trickster spirits, basically. Uh, and the cover even has a gray alien with many different masks on. And he sort of investigates the worldwide phenomenon of abductions and how they're connected to fairy lore and things like that. So this sort of thing did happen before. Uh, so I believe that the Babylon working really opened the door for the modern American UFO movement. Even uh, So what he, what he was doing... Um, to summon his elemental was actually called Enochian magic, which was created by John D. I don't know how familiar familiar you guys are with John D, but he was the astrologer and magician to Elizabeth I of England, and he was an alchemist, an astrologer, a mathematician, and he created Enochian magic, which is still very popularly used today. Uh, but John D. had reported seeing little men in their fiery something or other fiery vehicles. Uh, and that was in the 1600s, obviously. So, let's see. There's also a strange connection to, to nine, with the nine UFOs over Mount Rainier. 
And uh, nine is actually an important number in Levian Satanism. And then Whitley Strieber in the, his book Communion describes the nine knocks on the side of his house, which is what, you know, was the beings letting him know that he was about to be abducted. So I just thought that was... Okay, they, they just like knocking on the door or the, the were, side of the... They were like literally knocking on the side of his house. Nine okay. mechanical knocks. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So, um, essentially, Jack takes credit for the modern UFO movement in America. So, but in 1952, he was actually killed in a tragic accident. He had sold his mansion, okay, but part of the agreement for the sale was that he would still be able to live and work in the carriage house. So, it was like a detached garage, right? And he was in there working. He, he and Candy were about to go on a trip to Mexico, which he said was to join an artist uh, commune. But there is some whisper that he was working with the Mexican government on, on rockets or some sort of covert operation down there in the Mexican desert. And he was working with mercury in a coffee can and they aren't sure what happened, but he exploded himself. His jaw was blown off, uh, the lower part of the arm that was holding the can, and all the skin on his legs was blown off. And that was June 17, 1952, almost like exactly, almost exactly 69 years ago. And um, he actually survived long enough to get Ooh. to the hospital. Yeah, so he lived like that for a period of time. He wasn't immediately killed. And when they asked, when they were trying to ask him what happened, all he could do was moan and groan and obviously couldn't speak because yeah. he have a lower, a lower mandible to do that. So um, his mother was so upset that she immediately swallowed a bottle of prescription pills and killed herself within hours of, of Jack's death. Oh, that's commitment. Yeah. Uh, and Candy, later on in life, uh, in an interview, had said that she believed that Jack was attempting to summon a homunculus or a golem. Uh, and a homunculus is described as a little man that can do your bidding. Basically, um, kind of what people believe the greys are, like a combination of organic materials that are programmed to take and execute orders like robotically. So that's mm -hmm. okay. homunculus is. Um, so his death was ruled an accident, but there is also theories that he was uh, suicided, that he was, you know, assassinated. So the feds right after his death, just like with Nikola Tesla, rushed in and collected all of his notes and data. And all of that is still classified even to, to today. 70 years later. So the long-term effects of the Babylon working and Jack's foundational role within the NASA programs is that Jack is the common thread which ties everything together. And there is a group that Nick Redfern... Are you guys familiar with Nick Redfern? He's on like a lot that of... sure is hell <laughs> He's on a lot of different TV shows and stuff, like Ancient Aliens and stuff oh, like that. But I don't watch that stuff. 
He's a credible journalist, though, and he wrote this book called Final Events. Final Events tells us about the Collins Elite covert government agency that was formed by guys that had investigated Jack when he attempted to steal sensitive documents for Israel. And it was then that they took notice of his reputation as a black magician. And the Collins elite then discovered that Jack had been interrogated by the government already about his connections to UFO sightings and abductions. So the Collins elite set about trying to figure out what what these things are. So they were a group that were set outside they were part of the government but they didn't have like an overseer they were sort of an independent group within the government uh, they didn't even receive a lot of funding at first so it wasn't as if the government had a lot of interest in this but these were some guys that had already been familiar with what Jack was doing and then knew about his connection with the UFO sightings and abductions and wanted to figure out exactly what these things were and Nick Redfern claims that he has seen with his own two eyes documents summarizing the findings of the Collins elite and one of them is called New Mexico Origins Parsons Hubbard and the Babylon Working and another is by the CIA titled Parsons Von Karman and Goddard a door unlocked so those are official documents from the government The Collins elite also discovered through their contacts and the interviews they had conducted and the research that they had done over decades that the crash at Roswell in 1947 was actually a Trojan horse. It was planted, supposedly, by the beings that that Jack had contact with that we would call extraterrestrials that it was actually planted there as a ruse to make humans believe in extraterrestrials that there was something out there they also became familiar with something called the Parsons technique is what our government called it and it, it's a magical technique <laughs> of closing doors, opening doors to the spiritual realm and closing doors. And what the government came to believe was that the magician who opened the doors had to be the one to close them. But since he was dead, uh, the covert black budget government agencies took over and attempted to use black magic in the same manner. And according Sounds to- Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, right? <laughs> And according to the Collins elite, went even so far as ritual human sacrifice to be able to communicate with the beings responsible for UFOs and abductions. And supposedly, someone on the team at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base had manifested, through magical working, the same sort of material that was found at Roswell. But then when he lost his concentration and, and, and the ritual ended, the material disappeared. So the U.S. government believed it could somehow extract supernatural knowledge of technology from these beings. Interesting. Yeah. And the beings, which came to be called by these agencies, ultra-terrestrials or interdimensionals, communicated only through black magic rituals. So there was no other way to communicate with them. And there was no face-to-face meetings with these beings. It had to occur through channeling, psychic mediums, automatic writing, and trance states brought on by hypnosis or psychoactive substances like mescaline. 
Sure, that's a page right out of Crowley's book there. Oh, yeah, exactly. And this could be why MK Ultra was experimenting with LSD and, and mm-hmm. deprivation. Another project came about known as MK Often, which sought to figure out if the occult and black magic could be weaponized and used in intelligence operations, such as using psychic powers to cause people to have heart attacks at a distance. Supposedly, members of the Collins elite witnessed pictures of test subjects that had actually accidentally been murdered by psychic means. In other words, our government entered into a Faustian pact, a deal with the devil, if you will. And I'll just quickly read you a quote from Final Event. It says, The conversations always followed broadly similar ground, namely that the human race was being deceived into believing that it was receiving visitations from aliens, when in reality, demonic forces were secretly squaring up for Armageddon and the final countdown, and the DOD's overwhelming, overwhelmingly reckless dabbling into occult-driven areas to try and make a bizarre but futile pact of some sort with these same forces was inevitably and only destined to make things much, much worse for each and every one of us. That That's, like, profound, and it, it actually introduces a whole other concept, right? It's, it, this, this isn't aliens we're talking about. This is demons, which is, like, a huge about-face, uh, right. in, in at least in my mind, right? And, uh, of course, we know that Von Braun had told... Carol, Carol Rosen, that he had quit NASA because he had discovered this for himself, that all of this about militarizing outer space to protect America and to protect mankind, it's all to just control us, actually. Sure, smoke and mirrors, right? Yeah, right? that they knew it was a lie, that, that there aren't extraterrestrial contact. I mean, I don't doubt that there are extraterrestrials, but that's not what this is, is what... Mm-hmm the theory is and that um they're basically using the excuse of extraterrestrials and their faustian pact with these spiritual beings to control earth's population to bring about the new world order which is not conspiracy theory it's been no it's yeah we've we've got world leaders all over the planet that are reference it by name new world order you know exactly Mm mm-hmm was uh, uh, how much did you have left? Um, because we're already up to 57 minutes. Are you serious? Yes, I'm yeah. serious. That was pretty much it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I fell asleep I, a half hour ago. I tried. I <laughs> no, I, you know, Lauren, I honestly found it super, uh, um, interesting and i've been jotting down notes i've been looking on my phone googling stuff as you've been talking because i'm like i gotta i gotta look into this so um i've been riveted this whole time i'm so glad um i wonder if dan's gonna cut it down in 30 minutes (laughs) well i I can leave it but i can't guarantee the audience will stay for it we'll see if they're not interested then that's on them that's it's their loss you know know, the, the other thing is trying to make it entertaining too for well, I, I, like I said, I was. It's I, more, been, if, if it's an audio podcast, it's fine because people can throw it on and do whatever. Yeah. Well, we add some animations. <laughs> no, that's more work. <laughs> you know, these things aren't supposedly, according to the Collins elite, aren't what we have been told that they are by the government, and all of this stuff about they don't know what they are, they don't know. Uh, what's going on is a complete fabrication and they're just waiting for the opportune time to stage a false invasion or a false 
abduction and control us with everybody yeah because yeah. we'll we'll run to the urban centers and say please government protect I, us i do right? believe that this is the card and they're gonna play it like if carol Wazen says too this is the last card yeah, yeah. You, lauren you've given me a uh, you know I've, I've heard rumblings about that theory uh, i've never really heard it put together quite as nicely as you did um especially just starting uh with jack and nasa just blows my mind and just reinforces other things that i've uh-huh. kind of come across as i've you know gone on this adventure called my life um Pretty so good, huh? m- mind is yes it is and my mind is like i'm not gonna say 100 percent blown but at the good 80 percent blown <laughs> right now because i have got some all sorts of additional stuff I need to look into and get into this because um, it's it's scary. It makes a little bit of sense, and uh, you know a lot of this you can just you can prove it. That it's out there. Documentation, the evidence is out there. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna wrap it up right there. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Lauren, for doing that topic. Great to uh, connect again. It's been a little while. Yes, definitely. Thank you for so having that- me on. Yeah, so with that being said, what was it, our last episode? Uh, July 9th. No, August. Oh, August 6th. Two weeks from today, and uh, we'll see you guys then. Later. Later.